Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now Podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Uh, joining me as always for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Shane, great to be back with you. Thank you for dropping by and looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you, Zoe. Absolutely. So, Shane, a lot to cover, including a few key domestic topics. Though, before we get to those, it is worth highlighting how President Biden, he did recently return from his first trip in office to the Middle East. He made a few key stops, including to both Israel as well as Saudi Arabia. So, from your vantage point, Shane, what were some of the key highlights, takeaways from this trip? Yes. And I believe this was President uh, Biden's first trip to the Middle East since being uh, president. So a big trip for him, a four-day trip. And you're right, he went to Israel and Saudi Arabia. But it just wasn't um, Israelis and and the Saudis that he met with. Um, The Saudis hosted a summit where I think they had uh, a total of nine uh, Arab country leaders there, you know, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, uh, UAE, I think Egypt and Iraq and Jordan were there as well. So, um, you know, as always, sometimes these uh, trips get overshadowed by a moment. And I think most of the coverage I saw was uh, dominated by uh, President Biden's fist bump with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Sal- Salman of Saudi Arabia. But uh, to your point, you know, there were actual uh, business being and diplomacy being discussed. Uh, on this trip. You know, in Israel, uh, President Biden reaffirmed um, the U.S.'s support for Israel. He also, you know, um, extended a little bit of an olive branch to Palestinians, releasing some aid. Um, I think this was especially important in light of, uh, for him to visit Israel in light of, you know, Iran's, uh, you know, kind of provocations the past few weeks um, and really, you know, Uh, trying to puff out its chest with its nuclear program. Um, And this was also a topic of conversation with the other Arab uh, countries, you know, um, because, you know, remember, not all these Arab countries are truly friends with Iran and see Iran as a a destabilizing uh, force in the region. And so they, too, are concerned. So, you know, overall, there were some productive moments, I think, you know, there is a shadow over this, which is uh, this uh, trip, which is, you know, oil and gas prices uh, and did not receive any public reassurances from the Saudis uh, that they would, you know, open up the spigots per se. Uh, but, you know, uh, there is some uh, word that the private conversations were a bit uh, positive uh, for that front. But, you know, we're going to see in the coming days and weeks if that comes to fruition and and helps actually relieve uh, the price at the pump. Thank you, Shane, for the takeaways from the trip, and it sounds like a lot of ground was covered. Coming back stateside, a couple of key legislative items to check in on. I know we've been tracking this bipartisan chips bill as it relates to semiconductors. I understand that this legislation is set for a vote in the Senate next week. That's what reports have been suggesting. Can you, Shane, bring us up to speed on the key components of this legislation and any insight into the estimated price tag attached to it? Right. Yeah, no, as you know, we've been talking about this uh, legislation for a while because I think it is a bipartisan effort. 
um, that is important for a number of reasons. You know, one um, for you know, kind of um, uh, making it so the U.S. isn't so reliant on China and the supply chain of uh, critical chips in semiconductors that are important to a variety of sectors of our economy. You know, whether it be defense, healthcare. You know, it is a far-reaching. Uh, um, um, uh, component to our economy that we cannot be reliant on China for. Um, so, you know, this version that it looks like the, the, the Senate is going to take up is slimmed down from what the Senate has already passed, but also what the House has passed. You know, um, this does not delve into some of the more uh, uh, um, tricky issues like trade, um, but the heart of it is, um, you know, tens of billions of dollars uh, for um, to build and expand and modernize domestic facilities and equipment for semiconductor fabrication, assembly, and testing. Um, also, like $11 billion for research and development. Uh, and, you know, there, there are a couple other smaller parts, like $200 million um, to start development of a domestic uh, semiconductor workforce. You know, there is still a question of will this pass, how this is going to move forward. Um, the bill could get bigger. It could get smaller, right? So we're still, um, you know, not 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 locked in for the, this bill's fate. But I think what we're seeing is that some version of this is going to move forward that will be slimmed down from those previous efforts that we've talked about. And then Congress will see if it can pick up the pieces, you know, either in, in – you know, November, December, or next Congress, and and see if they can do something a little more ambitious on this front. Um, I think the bipart overall bipartisan nature of this leads to uh, Congress continuing to work on this. This isn't a one and done here. I think uh, this will be a continuous effort that will probably bear some fruit. You know, in the coming uh, years as well, not just this legislation in isolation. Sticking with legislation, uh, last week, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, he did walk away from the negotiating table over climate and energy spending, a key package that was being proposed. What was the reason for Senator Manchin walking away? And might congressional Democrats revisit similar legislation or pursue this further down the line? Yeah, if you look at the timeline, you know, this was uh, followed just shortly that uh, report that inflation was at 9.1%. And if you you think, you know, Joe Manchin, uh, senator from West Virginia, has been concerned about inflation for over a year now. And that has been a major kind of stumbling block for him the entire time where he said, you know, I don't feel comfortable passing such a large spending and tax bill uh, when inflation was a great concern of his. So he is, he is validated, um, with those numbers, uh, 9.1% inflation. And that, you know, kind of says to him, Hey, you were right to be concerned about inflation. So, you know, so what he's doing is kind of hitting the pause button here. He has left a little bit of the door open to say, Hey, if inflation comes down, you know, I'm happy to revisit it. Now it's hard to imagine inflation coming down so dramatically. In the, in the next month or two that um, he is on board with doing a bill in September because that's realistically the timeline here. Um, you know, uh, the window is short because of this unique budget reconciliation process. Um, if it's not done by the end of September, they would have to restart it. And that's just a kind of a 
a, a no-go right now, so, so close to the election. So, you know, uh, what he has said, though, and what we need to keep an eye on is he is open to doing a prescription drug negotiation bill uh, that would uh, actually be uh, a pay for because that reduces spending um, and it would pay for um, helping uh, uh, subsidies for those on Obamacare. Without action on that issue, uh, millions of Americans who are on Obamacare are going to see a dramatic um, premium increase um, later this year. So uh, I think that's what Democrats are honing in on. And, you know, uh, probably shortly after this chip spill is done, we'll uh, take that up in the Senate and I'll expect the House to uh, follow suit quickly thereafter. So there's there still is some mo- movement here on on Democrats coalescing around something. But you're correct that you know climate and, and energy and a lot of the taxes that we've talked about for a while now are probably sidelined. Um, you know they could revisit it, but I think that is. Um, on the lower end of the probability score for for right now. Shane, thank you for the clarity here as to where this stands, and we shall see how this might take shape in the weeks and months to come. I do want to turn to the White House for a moment. I recall yesterday we did hear the White House announce how President Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. What do we know as of this morning, Shane, with respect to the president's condition? Yeah, it's being reported that he has mild symptoms, you know, every once in a while, you know, that dry cough. Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, there are a couple of things we have to keep in mind. One, President Biden is um, double vaccinated. Double, uh, I believe that all my reading is this is that helps prevent um, severe um, um, symptoms for COVID. Uh, additionally, I think one interesting thing I was reading is, you know, President Biden is on a blood thinner, you know, to prevent blood clots, um, and they're going to take him off that so they can put him on the uh, antiviral for COVID. So, you know, I think, you know, doctors are going to be watching him closely, but that's probably one thing they'll be uh, watching very closely for is, you know, kind of that balance of of doctors saying, we're going to take you off one medication while we put you on a different one to deal with a, um, a more near-term issue. So, I, I think the prognosis, as I've, as I've seen as this morning, um, looks positive. He is apparently working, you know, and isolating in the White House. Um, but, you know, uh, I think we'll, we'll um, you know, feel a little bit better once uh, he gets to the woods here. Absolutely. Hopefully, President Biden has a speedy recovery. Uh, Before we close out, Shane, maybe one more topic we can hit on. I know over the past few months, we've been talking about the primaries. Of course, November will be here before we know it since we last spoke. I know a lot on this front has taken place, though. Any recent developments you can highlight for us? I know we recently had some interesting developments in Maryland. Yeah, Maryland is interesting. Uh, First, I would note in the governor's race on the Democratic side, the winner has not been declared yet. So they're still counting votes. I think there's um, roughly 70% of the vote in on, on the Democratic side. You know, uh, there are a lot of mail-in ballots. So we still don't know who won the uh, Democratic primary for governor of Maryland. Um, but on the Republican side, we do know the winner. His name is Dan Cox. Um, he is the Trump-backed candidate versus um the more moderate Republican uh, of Kathy Schultz, she was backed by uh, sitting Governor Hogan, who is not a Trump ally, you know, and and has already declared he will not support Dan Cox for governor. Um, so this is an interesting divide between uh, 
um, you know, some infighting between Republicans, you know, some people trying to move on from the Trump era and some people um, sticking close to it. it it's been very interesting because what you saw, I think, in this race and other races uh, around the country is Democrats getting involved in, in primaries on the Republican side, uh, where they themselves are kind of touting one candidate as the Republican, uh, the, excuse me, the Trump candidate. And that is pushing some Republican primary voters to that Trump uh, candidate, which in the long term, Democrats feel um, may help them win some of these races. So, you know, uh, Democrats were worried that uh, Kathy Schultz would win and then it would be a real tough race for governor. With Dan Cox winning, Democrats feel pretty good that no matter who their candidate is, um, they're going to win the governor's mansion in Maryland. Um, And you're seeing this play out, as I mentioned, you know, Arizona is probably the next big example, and I think even more magnified than Maryland, um, where you have uh, Carrie Lake, who is a Trump-backed candidate running for governor. You have Blake uh, Masters, who is a Trump-backed candidate running for Senate, um, versus, you know, kind of maybe more mainstream establishment uh, Republicans. And Democrats are hoping that these Trump candidates win in these swing states because that gives them, in their mind, an increased chance of victory in November. Um, so it's a new playbook, you know, to some extent, but it's also, it could backfire on them and could be, you know, dangerous in uh, uh, as they're maybe playing with the proverbial fire here. Um, so uh, this will be something that we watch, how it plays out. I think Maryland is noteworthy, but I th- I'm going to be more interested to see how, how Arizona plays out um, uh, in the coming uh, weeks. Well, some interesting dynamics in play across the country as we make our way closer to November. Looking forward to following up and hearing your takeaways from these primary races, Shane. Thank you again for dropping by the podcast today and for providing your insights into a range of developments within our borders and around the world as well. Wish you a nice weekend ahead. Stay cool. It is hot out there and looking forward to picking back up with our conversation again soon. Thank you, Dan, uh, for having me. I look forward to next time. I'm looking forward to getting outside and uh, sweating a few pounds off. (laughs) That makes two of us, absolutely. Thanks again, Shane. Appreciate it. And again, today we've been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. I do want to remind our listeners, our clients of UBS, that you can locate the latest Washington Weekly publication up on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. 
UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.